Everybody's stupid. That's how I'm starting the show this evening. Everybody's just dumb. You know, the, this controversy that erupted today, it just it seems as though it just keeps getting more and more absurd, the things that we end up spending an inordinate amount of time focused on. Now it's hurricanes past and present and the federal government response thereof and you know who did a better job and how many people died and politicizing everything and like i say everybody's stupid in this i i don't i don't see a hero emerging out of this latest controversy involving president donald trump a number of very poorly crafted tweets and of course the <laughs> the the storm you know if you'll pardon the pun of response from the left that he conjured as a result. It's all dumb from start to finish. The things he said, the context in which he said it, the reactions to it, the 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 justification for all of it, the premises upon which all of it is based, all really, really unintelligent. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for a closing argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up for you. You can join us this evening, contribute to our consideration of the dum-dum at 651-989-5855. Brianne is in for Brad uh, producing the show, taking your calls. So let's start with Trump, and then we'll we'll work our way. Because Trump, you know, unsurprisingly, <laughs> look, tr- Trump Trump's response is what it is, right? His behavior, it, Trump is in his own way like a storm. He's like a hurricane. You know, he's a force of nature. He's just something that happens when, especially when he tweets. When Donald Trump decides it's time to tweet. You just got to kind of batten down the hatches and, you know, sound the alarm and be like, oh, here comes, here comes the tweet. Oh, he just tweeted. Oh, oh, what's he said? Oh, just hunker down. Just let it blow over. It is what it is. It's coming. You can't stop it. People have tried to control it. People around him have tried to advise him. It's never going to happen. The, Trump tweeting is a force of nature onto itself. But Trump's tweet really is the least stupid thing about this story which is saying something because the tweet's pretty dumb. Let's start with the tweet, and then we'll expand our consideration to everyone else. And as we move from Trump's tweet to the the outer circles surrounding it, it gets less and less impressive in the intellectual department. From the New York Times, the presidential playbook during times of disaster is pretty well established by now. Consult with emergency officials and be seen doing so. Express concern for those affected on camera. Assure the public that the government is ready for whatever comes, whether it is or not. But once again, President Trump has rewritten the playbook as Hurricane Florence blows through the Carolinas. While delivering forceful messages of warning and reassurance, Mr. Trump has also been busy awarding himself good grades for past hurricanes and even accusing opponents of inventing a death toll to make me look as bad as possible. At a time when even Mr. Trump acknowledged that the focus should be on millions of Americans in the path of the storm, 
The always about me president could not restrain himself for long. Angry at criticism of his response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico last year, he denied on Thursday that nearly 3,000 people had died, falsely calling it a made-up number by Democrats out to get him. His defiant rejection of the widely accepted count infuriated the island's leadership and even some Republican leaders in Congress, but it was hardly the first time Mr. Trump has dismissed consensus facts that did not fit his narrative. Mr. Trump's version of his presidency is one of unmatched, best-in-history, victory after victory, never mind what history may say, what the people of Puerto Rico considered a calamity he saw as an incredible, unsung success. And, you know, they go on and on and on to to rend their robes over how horrible Donald Trump is. Now, what he tweeted, what he tweeted, this according to the, the Star Tribune, in a related article talking about the political fallout from this, Trump's tweets claimed that 3,000 people did not die due to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, falsely alleging that the official death toll was part of a plot by Democrats to make him look bad. This was immediately condemned by Puerto Rican leaders, Democratic opponents, and in a rare breach, fellow Republicans in the state of Florida. Ron DeSantis, who won last month's GOP primary for governor largely due to Trump's endorsement, doesn't believe any loss of life has been inflated, a spokesman said. Governor Rick Scott, who is challenging Democratic Senator Bill Nelson for his seat in November, tweeted flatly, I disagree with, with uh, POTUS. The direct and swift rebuke from Trump's Florida allies demonstrated the significance of the Puerto Rican voters in a state where races are often decided by slim margins. Republican candidates for months have been carefully courting the Puerto Rican community, hoping to prove their concern about the island's slow recovery and win over voters who tend to vote Democratic. But the episode shows how Trump, who has an outsized influence on races in Florida and beyond, may not make it easy for Republicans to reach out to swing voters. Now, the response from the Democrats, from the left, from the media to these tweets, which if you if you ha- if you can't tell so far, I'm not impressed with the tweets, right? I don't think the tweets were well crafted. I don't think the point that Trump was trying to make was a good point. I don't think he made it at the right time in the right fashion. The tweets were done. That said, the reaction is no better. The response from virtually everyone is no better because you know, first of all, th- let's start with the worst of it. The notion that this is somehow racist or somehow anti-Puerto Rican or that this is somehow indicative of some sort of of uh, white supremacy or whatever the case may be. Donald Trump, as the New York Times itself points out, Donald Trump is not motivated by those things when he come when he comes out and makes these types of claims. I mean, we've seen this type of claim from Donald Trump before, right, on a regular basis where he's primarily concerned with maintaining his reputation as the guy who does a good job, as the guy who's always winning, as the guy who's always on top, who's always doing it better than the guy before him, and is, and is setting a bar that nobody who comes after him will ever be able to match because he's just so awesome. And that's his brand, right? And so the, he's responding to criticism that he's been receiving for his performance, which, you know, we could spend some time talking about how presidents onto themselves are supposed to single-handedly defeat hurricanes. I'm, I'm not sure how that's supposed to work. But this is apparently an expectation now. You know, ever since Katrina and George W. Bush, you know, we now have this, this expectation that the president of the United States onto himself is going to prevent a hurricane. And indeed, 
if you think I'm exaggerating about that, we have a piece here in the Washington Post we'll get to here, here momentarily where a gentleman by the name of Tom Tolles makes that exact case. His headline is, yes, you can blame President Trump for Hurricane Florence. <laughs> what? I, I, uh, okay. I, I didn't know that pre- Trump had that kind of power. I didn't re- realize he was a weather wizard. I didn't realize he was the bearer of a magic wand. Uh, that's It's interesting news. I, I guess we're in for fun times ahead with the random Trump weather conjuring that he's apparently capable of. But at any rate, the, this notion that he's motivated in some way by the fact that it's Puerto Rico and by race and by this the racial dynamics is based on precisely nothing. Very clearly, what Donald Trump is motivated by here is his own reputation as a guy who does the best job at literally everything he sets his mind to. That's what motivated these tweets. Now, that's a pretty bad motivation for virtually anything. It's it's certainly a bad motivation for these tweets at this time in this context directed this way. It doesn't make the tweets better, but it certainly doesn't make them racist. And so, you know, that's among the worst response that we've heard. But the other part of this that's disingenuous on the part of Trump's harshest critics is that he actually did kind of have a point embedded within the the rhetoric that he chose to use. There actually was a point here regarding the way in which these deaths have been counted. And the New York Times, ironically enough, admits as much. They have a separate piece entitled, How Do We Know 3,000 People Died as a Result of Hurricane Maria? They write, when Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico a year ago, it was clear that the storm had left a fatal imprint on the island and that the magnitude might take months to fully assess. That has proved to be the case. While the government in the early weeks reported that 64 people had died in the storm, which, by the way, is exactly the number that Donald Trump gave in his tweet, a number of assessments in the ensuing months have demonstrated that the toll was much higher. Recently, the Puerto Rican government revised its official death estimate to 2,975, reflecting the fatalities that occurred during Hurricane Irma and Maria, as well as after, deaths that were because of the storm's brutal and lingering impact. Key phrase, lingering. This week, President Trump raised new questions about the death toll. He said on Twitter that 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. It was only later, well after the storms, he said that the numbers started to go up. And this is the exact tweet. He said, 3,000 people did not die. Uh, When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. This was done by Democrats in order to make me look bad as as, as possible when I successfully raised billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico, Mr. Trump said. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the list. Bad politics. Now, that last little bit, people have jumped on as, oh, I can't believe you would suggest that these numbers have been inflated in any way and that people who died for unrelated reasons were being counted in these numbers. Well, listen to what the New York Times goes on to say. They they try to answer the question, what was the basis for the 2,975 death toll? Shortly after the storm in September of 2017, the official death toll stood at 64. That number included only people whose death certificates listed Hurricane Maria as a contributor, as certified by the Puerto Rico Rico Forensic Sciences Institute in San Juan. But under pressure from a skeptical public, 
The Puerto Rican government announced in December that all deaths that had occurred in the months after Hurricane Maria would be reviewed and that people who had died either directly or indirectly as a result of the storm would be included in a revised tally. The authorities commissioned researchers at George Washington University's Milken Institute of Public Health to do this work, which has not yet been completed. However, the researchers came back with an initial report in August, which compared, listen to this, this is where they're getting their number from, compared the total number of deaths that occurred in the months after the hurricanes with the number that normally would have been expected. So in other words, it's in, they're eyeballing it. It's an estimate. This provided the scientific foundation. <laughs> they, they write that next without any sense of irony. The, they, that, this provided the scientific foundation upon which the territorial government immediately announced that it was revising its death toll estimate upward to match the numbers in the new report. Is it legitimate to count both direct and indirect deaths? The federal government says yes. In relation to hurricane deaths, the term direct means those that occurred from drowning or other effects of the storm itself. Indirect deaths include those in which related factors such as difficulty reaching a hospital for care or trouble refilling medical prescriptions played a role. George Washington researchers said they found that doctors in Puerto Rico at the time of the storm were not aware of new guidelines from the Federal Centers of Disease Control uh, released the month after the hurricane, which recommended that doctors also consider a natural disaster's impact in assessing how to tally deaths. And so effectively what Donald Trump said was correct. These numbers have been inflated. Now we don't know to what degree we certainly don't have precise numbers. And that after all was his point. Now he could have made this point in a much better way at a much better time than doing it on Twitter in a, in a very kind of self-congratulatory and confrontational and defiant way. But this is Donald Trump. So what do you expect? Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. The world is... The situation in Florida politically with Republicans courting Puerto Rican voters and finding themselves suddenly set back hugely after these tweets from Donald Trump is indicative of the the larger difficulty and lack of traction that has been made with so-called minority outreach within the Republican Party in the past couple of years. In fact, that's a term that I haven't heard anybody use in at least a couple of years you used to hear about it all the time during the tea party years you know minority outreach was on the tip of everybody's tongue you know there plenty of people were talking about it certainly party officials were, were considering it uh, dan severson who ran a few cycles back for secretary of state uh, and u.s senate at various uh, cycles he put forward an effort to try to engage with uh, the Hispanic community and the Somali community in this state and made a lot of headway. And when I say headway, what I mean is he developed relationships with actual individuals. He got to know people. He listened to what they had to say. And then after he got to know them, after he learned who they were and what they cared about, he introduced 
his ideas, the conservative ideas, into their consideration and suggested how these principles could actually apply to their concerns and make a difference in their lives and in their communities. That's how you do it. Unfortunately, this methodology didn't catch on very, very well. Didn't gather a whole lot of traction for some reason that remains completely inexplicable to me. There, there wasn't a lot of appetite for it. There was a lot of rhetorical, you know, head nodding and, oh, yes, this is great. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you're doing that. But there wasn't a lot of people who were lining up to be like, oh, gee, you know, sure. tell me more. What, what can I do to help? How can I develop these relationships? How can I plant seeds that I may not be able to harvest this season, but what will eventually result in a shifting demographic envelope for the Republican Party and a growing of new constituencies. Well, apparently that's something they're interested in in Florida as well. And, you know, it's it's pretty tough to do it when the standard bearer for your party, the president of the United States, is out there with uh, the rhetorical bludgeon that is his Twitter account saying things that turn an entire potential constituency off. And, uh, yeah, yeah, what can we say? It's not something that's going away. It's, it's what we've got. It's part and parcel. I guess we just have to hope that maybe one day when <laughs> Donald Trump is no longer the standard bearer of the party, we'll somehow be able to recover and, and start making these inroads once again to communities that need conservatism and need to understand how the principles of liberty and freedom and a constitutional republic are essential to the pursuit of their own values and their own happiness. Meanwhile, though, of course, you know, the, the left is also pretty nutty. Then there's this piece we touched on a little bit, Tom Tolles writing at the Washington Post, stating that, yes, you can blame President Trump for Hurricane Florence. Now, he offers a little disclaimer, which I, I guess we're supposed to give him some kind of credit for. He says, no, President Trump did not create Hurricane Florence all by himself. See, it would have been really interesting if he had put the period right after, no, President Trump did not create Hurricane Florence. That would be a true statement. But then he adds the words, all by himself. So apparently, there's some sort of coalition of people who are involved in the conjuring of hurricanes to batter American states. I, I don't know how that works. He does have some thoughts, though. This Tom Toll's writing at the Washington Post. He says, here's the case for blaming Trump anyway. Hurricanes and other storms are intensified by additional atmospheric or ocean warmth. That's offered, I guess, as prima facie evidence that Trump's at full. I didn't realize he was going around heating the oceans. I thought the sun did that, but apparently it's Donald Trump. Insufficiency of climate action has already contributed to the intensification of storms in the past, in the present, and in the future, with ever more and ever worse to come. Trump is not only failing to act in the face of this catastrophe, but is also actively and deliberately making the problem worse. Just this week, his administration is talking about new rules to allow more methane, a super greenhouse gas, to flood into the atmosphere. That must be a new scientific moniker or new scientific classification super greenhouse gas greenhouse gases that really go the extra step above and beyond to heat the earth fantastic everybody has trouble connecting the dots between catastrophic climate amplified storms like florence and human actions like donald this is an excellent time to connect them and then he goes on to try to to make his case that 
Again, the President of the United States apparently has the mystical power to control the weather. Amazing. You know, last night, had we talked at some length regarding the video that was obtained by Breitbart from shortly after the 2016 election, wherein the leadership of Google made it abundantly clear that they did not like the outcome and that they were taking it on as a personal and corporate mission to make sure that this type of upset never happens again. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've been thinking about it over the past 24 hours and, you know, it's true. You know, we have to be careful in our consideration of this because private companies under libertarian ideals, which I subscribe to private companies can choose to do properly morally should have the ability to choose to do whatever they want. If a private company wants to engage in a political mission, then they ought to be free to do so. That said, it's interesting, and I would say troublesome, that a, a company that, you know, when you, when you have, it's, it's one thing when people who work for a company or even who lead a company express their political opinions in a public setting. You know, they go out, they, they go out on the street, they write an op-ed, they go on TV or step into a podcast studio or whatever and say, this is what I think about Donald Trump, or this is what I think about climate change, or this is what I think about, you know, the, uh, nationalism or whatever the case may be. It's another thing when the organization, the leadership of a corporation like Google gets together at a business meeting within the context of their own company and starts to talk about their corporate strategy alongside and intermingled with a political strategy. At what point does Google become a political campaign? I mean, they have, is, is there, can you point to, how many companies can you point to that have a greater capacity for influence upon the beliefs, upon the information that, get, that people get exposed to that Google has? I mean, their, their power, the, their ability to leverage their platforms and you know their search engine and YouTube and everything that they control, their power is unparalleled. And so for them to decide that they're going to use that power for a political purpose strikes me as falling under the rubric of a political campaign operation. And we have regulations in this country and in the several states regarding the operation of political campaigns and political work. So why is it that if a Tea Party in Rochester, for example, if a Tea Party in Rochester decides that they're going to organize as a 501c3 in order to raise a meager amount of money and utilize that money to you know, print flyers or perhaps buy time on a local radio station, why is it that they are harassed and harangued and caged in regulation and bureaucratic red tape? For wanting to do that, but Google can do whatever they want in order to try to affect political outcomes as a corporation. Now, I believe they probably ought to be able to, but if if we're going to indulge this, if we're going to allow them and Facebook and Twitter and all these left leaning big tech companies to act in order to affect political outcomes, then we need to remove the restraints upon everyone else. 
We'll talk more about this when we return, because unfortunately, that's not the direction things are going. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, iHeartRadio. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Last night, the the news broke over at Breitbart. They got hold of and distributed a video that recorded a company meeting at Google, which took place just after the 2016 election, wherein the assembled techies rendered robes and gnash teeth and Ring their hands over the, the star fact chamber. that yes, the star chamber over the fact that Donald Trump had been elected uh, the next president of the United States and committed uh, rhetorically and to, to various uh, notions of trying to use their power, their institutional power, and this is Google we're talking about, the owners of you know the biggest search engine in the world, the owners of YouTube. Uh, the the owners of Chrome, one of the biggest browsers out there uh, that gets used by folks, taking action to affect how people think, how people interact, what people believe, and ultimately colluding, you could say, to affect the next election. Now, you know, my question becomes, at what point does this activity cross the line into political campaigning? And if so, should it be governed by the same campaign finance regulations that, that and tax codes and what have you that have put a thorn in the side of truly grassroots organizations such as the Tea Parties that over the past decade or so that came under harassment from the IRS when they tried to engage in political activism and tried to go about it the right way through applying for 501c3 status, through being explicitly a politically-minded organization, not under the cover of commerce, right? Breitbart has a follow-up compilation of five different times that Google displayed political bias. We'll go through them here on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brianne is in taking those calls and producing the show. Following Breitbart News' recent reporting of a leaked Google TGIF meeting in which Google executives and employees displayed a left-leaning political bias, Breitbart has decided to recap some of our previous reporting on Google's bias. Breitbart News has reported on Google's anti-Trump bias for some time now. The leaked internal video from Google's all-hands meeting following the election of President Trump only confirmed reports of a pervasive left-leaning culture throughout Google. Here are a few times that Google has displayed open bias, not just within the company, but within its own products. Number one, Google listed Nazism as the ideology of the California Republican Party. Due to Google's reliance on Wikipedia to easily provide immediate information and search results, Google listed Nazism as an ideology of the California Republican Party. In May of this year, when searching for details on the California Republican Party, one of Google's knowledge boxes would appear to provide basic information about the subject. This information is gathered from Wikipedia, which has been proven in the past to be frequently edited 
with incorrect information, commonly called vandalism. The knowledge box for the California Republican Party listed Nazism, conservatism, market liberalism, uh, fiscal conservatism, and green conservatism as ideologies of the Republican Party. The issue was brought to notice by House Majority Leader Representative Kevin McCarthy, and Google responded to the error via Twitter. Number two, Alphabet, and that's the parent company of Google, Alphabet's former chairman worked directly with the Clinton campaign, according to WikiLeaks. Eric Schmidt, the former campaign chairman or the former chairman of Google's parent company, Alphabet, reportedly worked directly with the Clinton campaign during the 2016 election while still with Alphabet. Schmidt expressed his desire to work with the Clinton presidential campaign in documents published by the whistleblowing organization WikiLeaks. The emails between Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta and campaign manager Robbie Mook show that Schmidt met with Podesta and was interested in assuming the role of head outside advisor. I met with Eric Schmidt tonight, wrote Podesta. As David reported, he's already or he's ready to fund, advise, recruit, talent, etc. He was more deferential on structure than I expected, wasn't pushing to run through one of his existing firms, clearly wants to be a head outside advisor, but didn't seem like he wanted to push others out. And then they go on to provide uh, more details regarding that. Number three, Google appeared to manipulate search results in favor of Hillary Clinton. A report from psychologist Dr. Robert Epstein alleged that Google manipulated search results related to Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election that had the potential to shift as many as 3 million votes, according to Dr. Epstein. Epstein, along with his colleagues at the American Institute for Behavioral Research, became interested in a video published by Matt Lieberman of SourceFeed, which claimed that Google searches suppressed negative information about Hillary Clinton, while other search engines such as Bing and Yahoo showed accurate results. Number four, Google employees worked to damage Breitbart's ad revenue. Current and former Google employees confirmed to Breitbart in February of this year that leftists at the company were actively working to damage Breitbart's advertising revenue. In leaked screenshots obtained by Breitbart News, Google ad account manager Aidan Wilkes can be seen advising a client of Google's that advertising on Breitbart may impact their brand safety. Wilkes then linked to client or linked the client to Sleeping Giants, a far-left organization which has repeatedly targeted Breitbart News and other conservative websites with false claims of racism and bigotry. In the same screenshots, another Google employee named Matthew Rivard can be seen telling the client that Wilkes' email was a nice template for those who wish to call out the issue to other clients. And finally, number five, Google censored Prager University's educational YouTube videos on multiple topics. In 2017, PragerU brought a lawsuit against Google alleging that the tech company's YouTube division was violating the First Amendment by censoring free speech. PragerU, which was founded by conservative radio host Dennis Prager and produces short graphics-based videos relating to conservatism, claimed in their lawsuit that Google slash YouTube uses their restricted mode filtering not to protect younger or sensitive viewers from inappropriate video content, but as a political gag mechanism to silence PragerU. Many of PragerU's videos were placed in restricted mode by YouTube, which makes the videos unavailable to be shown in schools and libraries and places a warning on videos stating that they are restricted. In 2016, PragerU attempted to deal with their issues with YouTube outside of court, writing on their Facebook page that they had worked quietly behind the scenes for months to resolve this, but YouTube's censorship continues, leaving us with no option to go but to go public. PragerU then asked users to sign a petition demanding that YouTube stop blocking the videos. 
There's no excuse for Google and YouTube censoring and restricting any PragerU videos which are produced with the sole intent of educating people of all ages about America's founding values. And they go on to to cite the fact that there have been, you know, you, you take one Prager University video on a particular topic and you can find countless left-leaning videos on that exact same topic that are not restricted, that, that can be viewed in schools, that can be viewed in libraries. And, you know, for whatever reason, only Prager University's videos are the ones that get restricted and, and kept from educational institutions. We'll talk to Eric from Uptown and take the rest of your calls when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com. Hey, it's Drew here inviting been talking about Google's political crusade under the cover of commerce. They're committed to influencing the culture, influencing politics, influencing the next election here in the United States. But, you know, for some reason, they're not governed by the same campaign finance regulations that throttle and hobble conservative organizations such as various Tea Party groups that came under scrutiny and harassment from the IRS under the Obama administration. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855 is our number. Let's talk to Eric in Uptown. Thanks for holding through the break. Good evening, Walter. Um, Google, my, my thoughts on this are, I've been in the Internet, I started in the Internet industry um, like in 1998, um, involved with the Internet, and there was always problems because everyone could set up a website and put anything they wanted on it. So immediately you always had to think to yourself, well, what's really on these things? And I truly believe Google should not be regulated here. Um, and they could be, it should do whatever they want to do. But I do think they need to put up a disclaimer. When you get to their website, they just simply say that the results may vary and that some of the people lean left. What if they actually put up a disclaimer saying exactly, you know, this company is run by people who, have a tendency to lean left, and just by a natural occurrence, you're going to get results that lean left. Just like if you go to Breitbart, you're never going to see anything wonderful about Hillary. Right, right, right. What do you, what, what do you think in there? Well, I mean, how do you – so you've come to the conclusion in both of those cases, with Google and Breitbart, you've come to the conclusion on your own that Google leans left and that Breitbart leans right. How did you come to those conclusions? Is there a disclaimer currently on either of those sites? No, but I read both of them because I don't believe anybody. I'm one of those kind of people. Right, but what I'm, I'm going to do my research and just and I can come to the conclusion by based on Google or based on Breitbart the results I'm getting. Correct. And what I'm driving at is that ultimately, I mean, you you talk about the early days of the internet and the the realization of wow, literally anybody. It's been referred to as kind of the democratization of the press, whereby. Anybody can put up a blog. Anybody can put up a podcast. I mean, that my own you know, path to, to this particular platform is paved with blogs and podcasts, right? Sure. And so, and, and there are tons of people who have utilized those resources to whatever ends. But the, the, the notion that it's somehow problematic that we don't know what the, the credibility of a certain report or a certain post or a certain author, whatever the case may be. Look, that's always true, right? Like the the all, the only difference that the internet has made is just the sheer amount of content and the number of people who have the capacity to connect 
with an unlimited potential audience. But the fact of the matter is, we've always had to vet information. We've always had to look at who's saying it, what's their reputation, what's their pattern of behavior. And if their pattern of behavior is unknown to us, then we have to take it with a much larger grain of salt. And I think that the the Internet is coming out of or still going through, perhaps, in a sort of adolescence wherein we're still kind of discovering and we're still kind of learning how to vet information and determine what is trustworthy and what is not. But I don't think we necessarily, I mean, look, I'm not against the idea of a disclaimer, but I don't think that there's this, this need for some sort of fix to the problem of how we determine the bias of a particular source. I think it's pretty apparent if you like, if you like you have, have spent any amount of time actually researching these sources. I, I don't have the time to research well, actually, I kind of do because of my job. It lets me. I, I can uh, listen uh, to like shows and things like that. But we have. It's, you're educated in America. You know, we hope. And there's there's common sense things that just are not. You know, like you read on the internet that are just you know common sense saying there's not some kind of crazy dolphin speaking out. You know, to a massive crowd, but people will write that, and you'll actually have people that take that in. You know, not entertainment purposes, I guess. <laughs> right, right, I, I, right. I don't know. I guess it's a hard one, but no, I know I, in but, Colorado, when we don't want people to see what we want to put mm-hmm. our websites, we have disclaimers, and you have to be 21 to get in and whatnot. Right. And I just think that you really got to rely on the education part piece as well. And I think people should be able to, I think the internet should be a wild, wild west, and people really should be able to put anything they want out there at all that's not you know you know directly threatening or something like that somebody yeah Amen. And, and, well and that's and that's the same standard that's applied to any speech in any format that the technology doesn't change the underlying principles that apply i appreciate the call eric yeah you know look i don't i don't see this as a problem you, the fake news phenomenon the notion that People post things on on the internet that aren't true. I, I love how this is suddenly a problem in the year 2018. Well, when the wrong president ro- became president, that's right. Then yeah. it was a problem. It's suddenly it's suddenly a discovery that we've all made that there's a lot of information on the internet that just isn't correct, and something simply must be done. <laughs> like here, here's the deal. You're you're right. People see stuff. They thumb through their news feeds. I thumb through, scroll through my newsfeed, and I see something and I react to it, right? You know, we had a story uh, here the the other day. It, it involved the Muhammad Noor. And there's a follow-up piece that we might get to next hour, wherein Muhammad Noor, uh, supposedly during his, a, a previous uh, encounter where he pulled over a vehicle, got out, unholstered his weapon, and then drew down and pointed his weapon at the head of a motorist, and all the motorist had done, allegedly, and according to the initial report, was flip off a bicyclist. Now, as it turns out, there may have been more to the story, but when I first saw the original story, I reacted to what I saw, and I didn't, there was no, and there was no further vetting. How am I supposed to know anything other than what I'm seeing? This is a normal part of the process. People, people can only react to what they're being told and as long as we all know that and reserve judgment to potential new information i think we're all going to be okay twincitiesnewstalk.com thanks for listening to
imagine that your adult child or your brother or your cousin, somebody here you're close to, family, lives alone in an apartment and on a fateful night, an intruder breaks into their home, unlawfully enters their premises and starts yelling and screaming at them and an altercation occurs and the intruder ends up shooting your loved one dead. In the aftermath, that when the person's apprehended, their defense for doing so is, I thought I was entering my apartment. I didn't realize that I was in the wrong place. Would, would you accept that as an excuse? Would you expect the law to accept that as an excuse? Or would you hold the person responsible? Would you want them to be charged with murder? Well, that situation did manifest down in Dallas, Texas, and the intruder in question was not charged with murder. They've been charged with lesser charges, manslaughter charges. And the mitigating circumstance, which apparently explains why they're being treated with kid gloves, is that the intruder in question is a police officer. And apparently, if you're a police officer, that means you can, you know, quite literally, in this case, get away with murder. And the, the story onto itself is bad enough, and we'll get into the details here momentarily. But what's particularly egregious developing today is the, the fact that after this tragedy, an effort is being made to try to criminalize the victim and try to assassinate his character after he's already been physically killed. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brianne is taking those calls tonight and producing the show. Brad's out for the weekend. He'll be back on Tuesday. From the local Dallas, Texas Fox affiliate, following the shooting death of Botham Jean by the hands of Dallas police officer Amber Geiger, multiple search warrants were executed at Jean's apartment as part of the investigation. Attorneys for Botham Jean's family are outraged that the document describing drug evidence became public on the same day of his funeral. One of the warrants became a public record Thursday afternoon when it was returned to the judge who signed it. It was shortly after Jean's funeral had ended. It listed several items found in Jean's apartment, including a small amount of marijuana. There have been several warrants signed by judges and executed in this case, aside from the arrest warrant for Geiger and the search warrant signed September 7th that were returned to the court on Thursday. The others are still sealed and not accessible. The search warrant executed in Jean's apartment at Southside Flats specifically sought fired cartridge casings, fire projectiles, firearms, ballistic vests, keys, evidence of blood, video surveillance systems, and contraband such as narcotics and other items used in criminal offenses. So they were looking for contraband. They were looking for things that they could utilize in order to portray the victim in this situation as a criminal who apparently deserved it because apparently that's what we've come to in, in our war on drugs now is if you have a small quantity of marijuana in your apartment that you may or may not use for your own personal recreation, 
you deserve to have somebody kick in your door, scream and yell at you, and then summarily execute you, shoot you to death. Apparently, that's the narrative. Apparently, we're supposed to think, oh, well, he was a drug user, so I guess he got what was coming to him. That seems to be the narrative that they're rolling with down there in Texas. I don't know. Maybe that's effective down there. Maybe it's effective up here. I don't know. You tell me. 651-989-5855. There was a piece uh, done a couple of days ago that we've had sitting on the bench in the stack here from Mises, the Mises Institute, Mises.org, about all this that I think hits the nail pretty well on the head. Ryan McMacken writes, When advocates of gun confiscation complain about guns and say no one needs a gun for X, all they're really saying, whether they understand it or not, is I want only cops and soldiers to have guns. While gun control advocates often claim to be suspicious of police power, logic dictates that the gun confiscation position is simply the position that only government employees should have guns. Similarly, more mild gun regulation positions are designed to increase the coercive power of government over the taxpaying citizenry and to lessen access to private sources of self-defense, thus increasing private sector dependence on government police for protection. The gun regulation position is premised on the idea that only the police can really be trusted with gun ownership. And what a terrible position that is. Richard Black could tell us more about this. Were he alive today? After Black killed a home intruder in self-defense, he called the police. Sometime later, the police showed up and shot Black dead in his own home. The dead victims of the school shooting in Parkland could tell us more also when Sheriff's Deputy Scott Peterson, who was specifically supposed to provide security at the school, was faced with an armed intruder, he ran away and hid. And now we hear about the case of Amber Geiger. Geiger is a police officer who confused another man's apartment for her own. She trespassed on the man's property, saw his silhouette, and then opened fire. Her victim, Botham Shim Jean, died. In cases like these, police could not be counted on to use firearms appropriately, or they failed to use them to defend the innocent. Moreover, this latest case serves to illustrate, yet again, the enormous double standard that is employed when police behave in ways that any private citizen would be roundly and viciously denounced for. Were a private citizen to do what Geiger did, his actions would be provided as more evidence that private ownership of guns ought to be curtailed. Geiger has claimed in her defense that she gave verbal commands to her victim before she shot him. That this should even be considered any sort of defense requires a special kind of deference to government, but this is how police officers and their defenders think. If a normal person is woken or surprised in the middle of the night by an intruder with a badge, the victim is supposed to know by magic, apparently, that the intruder is a police officer and then do what you're told. Never mind that the person might just be claiming to be a police officer. For police, of course, private citizens are always supposed to respond calmly and obediently when screamed at by multiple police officers. Often the victims receive conflicting orders from police. Similar rules do not apply to police. Police, we're told, must make split-second decisions under extreme pressure. In other words, if the police make a poor decision under pressure, they're heroes who did what had to be done. If a private sector taxpayer like Richard Black makes the wrong decision, well, he deserved to die. 
The law reinforces this view as well. It is extremely rare for a police officer to be prosecuted for gunning down unarmed victims. In the black case, the police chief has already blamed the 73-year-old war veteran for his own killing. The chief's reasoning? Black, who was hearing impaired, should have responded faster to verbal police commands. Case closed. Even when a trigger-happy police officer is brought up on charges, the law is written in such a way as to make it extremely hard to thread that needle. Members of the jury are easily browbeaten into coming down on the police officer's side. We saw this in the case of Daniel Shaver, an unarmed man who was crawling and begging for his life when gunned down by police. Police officer Philip Brailsford was so fearful of his weeping, trembling, or this weeping, trembling man on the ground that Brailsford just couldn't help himself from opening fire. The jury's verdict, not guilty and they go on to to describe this uh the the double standard here over at mesis.org and you know look these are the thoughts what you're hearing here these are the thoughts of ryan mcmackin certain of his points i agree with other points i take some umbrage with but the overall thesis here the notion that police ought to be held to the same standard of conduct that private citizens are when in, when they're not engaged in the performance of their duties, I think is a solid point. You can't make the argument. It's not as though you know, Geiger was serving a warrant on this guy's apartment, right? It's not as though she was on duty and engaged in a, a rational, uh, probable cause pursuit of a likely criminal suspect. This was her, and we don't know what the circumstances are. I don't know how you walk into the wrong apartment and think it's yours. I suspect, even though there's been nothing publicly put out there to suggest this, I suspect that she may have been under the influence of something, possibly. I mean, I don't know how else you walk into the wrong apartment and think it's yours and then shoot somebody in it, right? If you if you haven't had a couple of drinks, but you know n- nothing to that effect has actually been disclosed, and if, and if it has happened, I I imagine they're doing everything they can to keep it under the the rug. But you know it's almost it would almost be worse for her if she didn't have a couple of drinks and did this because what kind of incompetence is that? But the notion that because she's a cop, she gets to walk into somebody's apartment and shoot them dead. <laughs> She gets to shout commands at them while she's off duty. Uh, that's problematic. Shouldn't we say? Shouldn't we agree? Let's talk to Barry from St. Paul. Welcome to the program. So I was going to talk about um, the situation that happened five or six years ago where they did serve that no-knock warrant during that, that push to catch uh, um, felons that they have every year in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and they shot over the top of the kid's head. But with you trying to bring that up, uh, that it's different when they're in the line of duty. But you realize in both Minnesota and Texas, police officers are never really off-duty. They're always police officers. It doesn't matter whether they take their badge off, whether they don't have their guns, they're always police officers. And if, if something happens, they're always considered... Police officers sure. never really off-duty. And that, 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 that makes sense. That's, that's where the problem lies. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily a problem onto itself. What I'm suggesting, and perhaps I wasn't precise with my language, is that, you know, yes, a police officer is always a police officer, 
However, they have to have a rational, probable cause for taking policing action. And, you know, there, there is you can't build a case that, oh, oops, I walked into the wrong apartment. Therefore, I get to shoot somebody like that's incompetence at the very least. Gross well, negligence. And, right. And from what I understand, the girl has been working like a long shift or whatever and was tired. And they had said that she wasn't under the influence and that she just went to the wrong floor. It was the right number on the wrong floor of her apartment. Mm-hmm. Whatever. It's, it's still not an excuse. No. But, but, but that's what they're saying is what happened. And then my question is, why did they? Why didn't she get charged with not, you know, driving home drowsy or whatever? If she didn't take an Uber, she obviously was not safe driving home. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And, and the same thing about like like cops driving under the influence or are using technology. Right. Yeah. If it, they got if the, it really they, if it really is a laptop in front of them. The influence, yeah. Why did they let they do one? Right. They literally have computers mounted inside their squads that they're actively using as they're tooling around. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can't teach somebody to drive drunk, how can you teach somebody to drive using being distracted? I don't understand the argument. While pulling people over for being distracted. Right. And look, you know, it's it's possible, and I appreciate the calls always, Barry. It, I don't want to get into, you know, uh, just a, a cop bashing marathon here. Because to me, that's not the point. I, I know police officers. I have police officers in my extended family. I support the police. I support law enforcement. Conceptually, we need the law to be enforced. I wish the laws were different that were being enforced. But I support generally the concept of law enforcement, and I support the people who put their lives on the line in order to to secure those laws and to secure our safety to the extent that they can. But the notion that you you have to you can't criticize anything that a cop does just because they're a cop is something that we have to dispense with if our root concern is justice, which I think it properly ought to be. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. We've been talking about a story out of Texas wherein a off-duty police officer, uh, apparently coming home from a long shift, claims she wasn't under the influence of any mind-altering substances, mistakenly walked into the wrong apartment, saw the silhouette of the rightful occupant, shouted commands at him in his own residence, and then decided to shoot him until he died. And uh, she's being treated with kid gloves by prosecuting authorities. And uh, there's, it raises the question about double standards in our culture when it comes to conduct that if you, know, you or I had engaged in it, we would have the book thrown at us. No questions asked. Let's talk to Sue in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi. Well, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of questions about this thing. It's, just, it's funny. You know, it's just funny she happened to go to the wrong floor. She goes to the wrong apartment. And I thought, well, how did she get in? 
I went to the wrong apartment once. Going, I went down a different way to the laundry room and got turned around. But my key wouldn't work in the door, you know. So, right. And secondly, then uh, I read in the paper that she um, that the door was not locked and it was slightly ajar. Now, this wouldn't that set off bells with you? I mean, isn't this a curious coincidence? She went to the parked on the wrong floor, went to the wrong floor, went to the wrong door. The door was open. She walks in. I I don't like the smell of that in the first place. And then, but then too, um, I'll, I why would you walk? You know, walk into an apartment where the door was ajar if you thought it was your apartment. I'd be very curious, first of all. Well, I mean, and you you raised some interesting questions. That I'm not entirely sure what all you're implying, but the circumstances are certainly odd, right? Like you would when you're when you go through the process. You know, we can all relate to coming home at night, right? And there's a certain certain action, certain daily routines and activities are so routine that we don't really think about them. And so the notion of, you know, we I I think it's safe to say we all at one point or another have walked up to the wrong car in the parking lot thinking it was ours or you know perhaps if we, when we lived in an apartment maybe we did go to the wrong door thinking it was our apartment or the wrong hotel room or whatever. But at some point you you are cued to realize that something is wrong. And to your point Coming up on the door and seeing that it's ajar, you would think that part of your reaction to that would be just kind of like quickly look around and verify if anything else looks out of place. Yeah. Right. Like and 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 to roll back the tape of your recent memory and say, wait a minute, am I on the right floor? Wait a minute, did did I is what else doesn't add up here and what rationally could that suggest? It just seems as though the sequence of events, and you know, it's it's tough to to judge having not been there, but I don't see much like you're suggesting the rational case for how she defensively continued to think that it was her apartment. Like she walks into it, you're telling me that he had the same furniture, the same objects strewn about. You know, the 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 shoes were in the same place. Once you walk inside, I mean. I would think you'd immediately know if you walk into somebody else's apartment. Exactly. Although it was dark, but it, but there's a light coming to be, in from the hallway when the door is open. It would have to be pitch black. Yeah. Pitch black and for then, you to not understand or not see immediately that it's not your apartment. And if that were the case, you wouldn't have seen a silhouette. Exactly. But there was another, in another article on the same thing I read in the paper, was where the lawyer, his lawyer now, says he went to the apartment and again, one has to question the source, the guy's lawyer, you know, but he says people in the apartment building said they heard someone, before the shot started, they heard someone knocking and some yelling. Interesting. So, but, I mean, did the police find this out? You know, like I say, it's his lawyer, but the whole thing is funny. And and uh, this is totally, totally subjective, but she looks looked kind of weird. <laughs> No, that's ironclad analysis right there, Sue. I'm I'm with you. She does look a little strange. Can't quite put my finger on it. He's so clean-cut and jolly-looking. Yeah. Oh, that's all I have to say. All right. I've made a fool of myself. It's all good. It's it's late enough for that. Take it easy. All right. So closer to home here from the Star Tribune. 
Attorneys for the ex-Minneapolis police officer awaiting trial for the fatal shooting of Justine Damon say prosecutors distorted and omitted details in attempting to paint him as an overwhelmed cop whose inattention to duty led to her death. The attorneys challenged the admissibility of Mohammed Noor's field training and psychological evaluations released by prosecutors, which they said was gravely flawed in both law and fact. The defense asks that none of this information be considered by the court for probable cause, Noor's attorneys wrote in a memorandum filed Wednesday in Hennepin County District Court. The two sides will argue pretrial motions later this month before Judge Catherine Quintance. Noor was charged in March with Damon's death after responding to her 911 call about a woman in distress near her South Minneapolis home. He became the first Minnesota police officer in recent memory to be charged with murder in an on-duty killing. Prosecutors say he shot her from inside his police SUV while responding to her 911 call near her South Minneapolis home. Nor, who was fired the same day he was charged, has said he acted in self-defense. <clears throat> in a series of filings last week, prosecutors argued that Nor raised red flags in early 2015 after taking a psychological profile exam, which revealed a level of disaffiliativeness that's a word I've never encountered before, that may be incompatible with public safety requirements. That is a very fancy way of saying he shouldn't have had this job. He really shouldn't have had this job. Kind of taken the long way on that one. And it was super obvious. I think that's what disaffiliativeness means. I might have to look it up during the break, but I'm pretty sure it means, yeah, really obviously shouldn't be here is basically the uh, the definition there. The revelations came in response to a motion by defense attorneys to dismiss the third-degree murder and manslaughter charges filed against him. But Norris' defense team said the findings are intended to be correlated with a criminal or a clinical interview while arguing that the test itself is culturally biased. They're playing the race card here. The state engaged in, at best, willful ignorance in their reply and knowingly encourages this court to rely on a racially questionable test interpretation a serious claim to be sure, attorneys argued. So they're they're making the case that the racial bias is afoot in terms of uh, how this is all being processed. What about the bias that allowed him to be rushed through? That's exactly right. I mean, is right. that not what racism has got us in this situation? That's exactly right. I'm just a little confused, I guess. Yeah, it's now the one thing that I will yield some credibility to here in the the lawyer's response is and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the program they added some detail to a alleged uh, account that took place uh, involving nor in a uh, the pulling over of um, a driver and the way it was originally reported a couple of days ago was that this driver had flicked off a bicyclist and so nor and his partner pulled him over and then drew their guns on him and, and nor pointed the gun at the guy's head when all he had done was flicked off a bicyclist. Well, apparently, uh, according to the lawyers, and again, you know, big grain of salt with the source, but apparently there was more rationale, more justification than that. Apparently the, the person had refused to pull over initially uh, and had, had led them for a little while on something of a slow speed chase. And then once he did finally pull over, there was some uh, gesticulating in such a manner as to suggest he may have been trying to uh, dispose of some sort of contraband or perhaps reach for a gun and that that is what prompted them to take out their weapons. Now, I have no idea which story is correct, but there is some ambiguity there, which was not uh, originally reported 
along with these these psychiatric findings. But you know, be that as it may, you've got his psychiatrist saying, "Yeah, this guy, you know, he doesn't like people. Uh, he is he's he's easily irritated. He overreacts." If that's not enough to disqualify him for being a police officer, then the bar is maybe just a little bit too low. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Find us on... I like Jeff Johnson. I know the guy. I've known him for a number of years. He believes the right things. He has the right values. He has good, solid conservative instincts and convictions. I nonetheless, you know, because it's my job, like my, I mean, my job summarized here on the program is to tell you one, the truth as I see it. And two, what I actually think. Like if I ever deviate from either of those things, if I try to, to spin it, if I try to fake it, then whatever value there is in this commentary is significantly diminished, if not going straight down to zero. Like the, the the whole point of conservative talk radio, political commentary of any sort, is to get an authentic perspective, to actually hear what somebody actually believes. And so I have to tell you what I think, even though there's a big part of me that doesn't want to in this instance. This gubernatorial campaign so far is pretty boring. It's pretty boring. I'm so bored. I am so bored by what I'm seeing coming out of this interaction between Tim Walls and Jeff Johnson. And I don't want to be bored. And it's not just because I want to be entertained. I, that's not it. It's not because, you know, oh, it, it should be all about entertaining Walter. That's not the point. What I'm saying is, is that there is a built-in disadvantage. Can we just acknowledge that much? There is, in this blue state that's still blue, I don't care how close Trump came to flipping it, this is still a blue state. I don't care about all the the rhetoric about a red tsunami impending, right? That's It's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to paint the state red. It's still a blue state. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done in order to secure these statewide offices. There's a built-in disadvantage here. And when you know there's a built-in disadvantage... Why would you play it safe? Why wouldn't you try to, especially in the era of Donald Trump, when everybody and their their uncle is trying to claim some sort of allegiance to Donald Trump because that's you know something that you have to do in order to be viable as a Republican nowadays. Like you have to you have to kiss the ring and pay homage to the standard bearer of the party, who is Donald Trump right now. If we're going to do that, if we're going to say Donald Trump's great and I'm, I love everything he's doing and make America great again, if you're going to let those words come out of your mouth and act as though you have this affinity for Trump, then why not at least try to adopt some of his better attributes, such as the willingness to speak boldly, the willingness to be combative, the willingness to be assertive, and first and foremost, the willingness to take risks, rhetorical, political risks, because you're going to have to do so. You know, it's kind of like being being down chips in a poker game. Like you, the, the, the bigger the blinds get relative to the stack in front of you, the more you're pushed to take risks you otherwise would not take, right? You're going to, you're going to end up pushing all in 
with a hand that you never would have considered pushing all in with because those are the circumstances, those are the odds that you're presented with. The same plays out politically. we got a situation here where unless a serious move is made, this cake is increasingly already baked. The goose is increasingly already cooked. So take a bolder stance. That's the, the general advice that I'm offering here tonight. Out of the Star Tribune, the two major party candidates for governor disagreed Thursday about how the state should tackle the opioid epidemic, an issue of growing concern for county leaders worried about the increasing burden of local budgets or on local budgets and preventing the treatment uh, of the, the and treating addiction. At an association of Minnesota counties conference in Alexandria, Democratic U.S. Representative Tim Walls said he'd pick up the push for a penny a pill proposal that would require pharmaceutical companies to pay a fee for the opioids they sell. DFL Governor Mark Dayton and a bipartisan group of state lawmakers unsuccessfully pursued that in this year's legislative session. Hennepin County Commissioner Jeff Johnson, the Republican candidate, does not support that approach, which he said amounts to a new tax. Obviously, he's correct. He said the money should instead come directly from the state's general fund, which is fueled by income taxes and other state taxes. Walls and Johnson talked about a range of issues at the county government's conference, including transportation funding, polarization in Minnesota politics, and frustration with top-down governance and unfunded mandates, and I'm falling asleep as I read it. Ugh. It's so boring. It's so provocatively boring. Like, I'm provoked at how bored I am. Like, I, I find myself amazed at how boring this is. Let, let me suggest an alternative approach. Like, you want to get some attention. You want to make some headlines. You want to earn some media. Imagine if the approach to this wasn't a minor quibble over how you're going to tax in order to fund opioid treatment. Because that's all this was. Like, the idea of, well, I'm not for taxes, but I'm going to pay for it with the general fund. Well, where does the general fund come from? Right? Like, it comes from taxes. Right? So, all you guys are quibbling over is what the source of the tax is going to be. Walls wants a new one that he's going to specifically take from pharmaceutical companies. And the answer to that from Johnson is, well, I'm going to use the general fund, which is taxes paid for by all of us. And, you know, so, so it's better somehow. How about this as an alternative perspective? How about we actually start talking about the ways in which the government has contributed to the opioid crisis? How, we start, how about we start talking about how the the culture could potentially be changed in order to facilitate real treatment, real health care for folks. You know, there there is a fear that people have. You know, you want to talk about, I mean, talk about it in a way that this blue state can understand. And and Johnson could never do this because he'd be he'd be conceding a point that you can't concede as a Republican nowadays. But the case is often made in in the context of immigration that illegal immigrants will not seek help from police when they need it because they're illegal and because they're afraid of being deported. Well, in a similar sense, why would somebody who's suffering from opioid addiction or any sort of addiction to a substance that they're not supposed to have why would they seek treatment? Why would they look for for help when they know they're going to be treated as a criminal? 
they know they're going to be treated as as some basically as somebody who needs to have uh, some sort of scarlet letter sewed into their outer garment in order to tag them as lesser than all of that is created not just by the culture but by government policy so how about making the case for how we can change how government works fundamentally to actually change the culture which has created this problem rather than talking about who we're going to tax and how in order to fund a new bureaucracy to attack a new problem. We're going to declare war on opioids. We're going to have a war on opioids now because that's going to work out just like the war on drugs and the war on terror and the war on everything else. You know, all these, all these, apparently the only way government can respond to something is by taxing people and funding a new bureaucracy to look into the problem for decades on end and never solve it. Sounds good to me. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Tomorrow's going to be fun. We're going to take it into your weekend going down a list of eight things government can't do for you. And this is something that I think is important because, you know, as... as as libertarians, we've often made the case, and conservatives as well, you know, regardless of how you label yourself, people who advocate for the principle of liberty, individual rights, capitalism, freedom, you know, if you, if you generally agree with the sentiment that you own your life, that you are not a slave, and that government ought to respect that fact, if that's a statement you agree with, then congratulations, you're a libertarian, right? It's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a particularly exclusive club it's nothing complicated or esoteric it's pretty simple if you're for freedom then congratulations welcome to the fold but the problem that we have in advocating for our ideas from a libertarian perspective from a a, uh, the desire to conserve our founding ideals of liberty and the constitutional republic the difficulty we have is that most people nowadays, definitely on the left and increasingly on the right as well, try to sell what government can do for you. Vote for me and I'll give you X. Vote for me and I'll use the power of the state in order to secure Y. And in order to succeed in advocacy for less government, advocacy for a reduced state, we actually have to start building the case for the value in that. And to my mind, the value is in what government can't do for you that you need to accomplish, that you need to achieve values that are that are essential to the preservation and enhancement of human life that you can't get through an act of Congress or an act of the state legislature. So we're going to talk about that tomorrow night. It should be a lot of fun. Tune in 9 to 11. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. Let's talk to Leland in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Uh, I was just reflecting on the two issues, one of the couple of issues that you had said tonight, and it reminded me of something that the Chinese, they don't have a word for crisis. The closest thing that they have is opportunity. Every time they see something wrong, they say someone has an opportunity to come along and fix it. So when it comes to things like Google, where they're obviously biased, Let's turn them into blockbuster video. Maybe create a, a United States citizen's own search engine called Amerisearch. 
or u.s.search and have an American-owned search engine that is, doesn't have that bias, doesn't politically discriminate, and let's turn them into blockbuster video. Um, when it comes to the police officers, uh, you know, that doing the stuff that they're doing, I think what's going to happen is that maybe a small portable AI device might be attached to their uniform that monitors biorhythms that uh, can monitor whether they follow the law, not just the camera, but one that's almost like a judge on their uniform and that uh, also can monitor the biorhythms of the partner. So on multiple calls, it says your partner's always calm, but you're already getting mad and everything, so maybe you need to go talk to the psychiatrist to find out why in the situation where your partner's biorhythms are flatlined and calm, it seems like you're becoming agitated. And I think something like that could actually help in the long run to create a better police force. I am entertained. Thank you, Leyland. Appreciate the call. That is uh, fascinating. I do disagree with that, though. I mean, I do think that's the way it will be. I think that that will happen. But mm-hmm. I think then you're churning into Judge Dredd. You know, you're yeah, just, right. AI is going to be, you know, serve as justice and judge. Right. And I that frightens me very much. But I do think that in some ways that is inevitable. You, you know, know? It's, it's, it's interesting because... You know, what we've gone through, I, we had a, a, a recent program here where I presented my revised standing rules for closing argument. And, you know, amongst those, we address the fact that human life, you know, the the moral case for liberty in a very, very brief nutshell, because we've we got less than two minutes left here. The moral case for liberty is that human nature requires it. Human beings, unlike animals who run on instinct, have to make choices in order to obtain and keep the values necessary for the furtherance of their life. And the first choice that we make as human beings is to make a choice. We have to choose to choose. We have to choose to engage our mind. And one of the biggest pitfalls, I would argue perhaps the biggest pitfall uh, in humanity, in our culture right now, is the temptation to not choose and and the, the seeking somebody else or something else to make the choice for us. This is what politicians capitalize capitalize on perhaps more than anything else is the offer, the temptation, you know, the the forbidden fruit of apathy and ignorance and laziness. You don't have to think you don't have to choose. You don't have to engage. And so when I think about, you know, AI-directed cops, that's the kind of thing that comes to mind. No, I, I would much rather have human beings who are virtuous and thoughtful and deliberate, who choose to choose and then choose the right thing based upon reason and morality and a, and a concerted effort to identify the best course of action and make sound judgments on a regular basis. Let's go for that. Not a computer, not a dictate from on high, not deference to some other authority, but choice. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Broadcasting on 88.3.